I, I'm going to speak this morning with fear and trepidation. I told, uh, I was talking to one of the members the other day. I said, oh, what I'm about to tell you, I'm telling you out of fear, out of love. I mean, don't, I want you to hear what I'm saying. And I want you to hear it as from the Lord this morning, okay? Um, uh, it was very interesting to see the Trinidad and Tobago people. I said, well, where is that? I mean, I thought it was down here somewhere, like, you know, south, you know, between us and South America. It is. It's in the, uh, according to Jed, it's in the Caribbean there somewhere. But you see those interesting people. They had black people. They had really Indian-looking, like American Indian with black skin, the, the, the mustaches. And I don't know. It was just such a mix of people. And you can see people are obviously like, you know, Indian India with the dot Indian type people there. You could tell that there was, you know, white people there. I mean, there's a mix of people there. So interesting how God, um, he said, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So there's a mix of people across the earth, you know, and they're all waiting to hear the word of God so that they can be saved. And I don't know, I'm ready to go on a mission trip to Tobago there. Haggai 2, 4 through 9, I want to read this scripture to you, and we're going to work on this this morning. Haggai 2, 4 through 9. I'm, I'm going to skip a couple little words in there because it's very Israel-centric, but I want to read it to you as God's people. And we do got to be careful when we're reading the Old Testament that we don't take things that are for Israel and apply them to ourselves. But I do want to say that if it's for God's people, and you're one of God's people, then it's for you. So he says, Israel, uh, sorry, Haggai 2, 4 through 9. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua. This is the high priest and the number one prophet there. This is the leader, kind of the judge leader of the, of the Israelites that are there in Jerusalem and the high priest. And now be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you peoples of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Skip down there a bit. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then skip again there. And it says, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And at the very end there it says, and in this place I'll give you peace. The desire of all nations. Now, if you catch a couple words there, uh, be strong all you peoples of the land, and work for I am with you, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Is the world being shook? Right now, it, it appears to be being shook. A number of years ago, I was, uh, Roger, and it's amazing that you're here, but the, the, we, we've had to fix that water line over there on Ramey Road, and it started snowing. We broke a water line, like, late in the afternoon, and it started snowing. And we worked on that thing till like, 9 or 10 o'clock at night in the snow. And it just was piling. It was like the last good snow we've had in five years or whatever. And I had my tractor and my trailer and my truck all attached one big thing. But I drove just the truck and the trailer back to the house because I knew that that tractor would push me, you know. So I'm getting, I'm going down Creston Road. If you go up, if you go down Fredonia Road and go that way, you have to go underneath the interstate. It's a real sharp left-hand turn. And I know that the turn is coming. I slow way down. I'm down to like literally, not like my normal driving. I'm down to like three miles an hour because I know that this is about, it's, it's down, it's steep, and then it's a sh you're actually kind of turning almost an S-turn back on yourself. As I get down the hill there, I'm, I'm at like two, three miles an hour. The truck just starts getting pushed by the trailer. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just getting pushed. I'm trying to turn, and the thing's just sliding, and it does this really slow-motion jackknife. I can watch the trailer come around. I can't do anything. And the trailer comes all the way around, breaks into the roof of the truck, 
breaks, you know, crushes the back door, breaks out the window in the driver's door. At, I'm talking one mile an hour. I'm like, come on. It's like a giant nutcracker that's just like, <laughs> and it's breaking all the And it pushes me all the way down, and there's kind of a big hole right there. I'm kind of afraid of going in that hole. It pushes me all the way around until I'm under the overpass there uh, at uh, Fredonia, or I mean, uh, right there at the drag strip, and I end up stopping on the guardrail. If I can back up enough, it doesn't matter now, strong. I didn't try to increase the insurance thing. No, I didn't claim it. It was, it was just, <laughs> I didn't even have good insurance on it. But I just made it worse, backed up a little bit, and then I drove onto the house. The next morning, I had to go into town, plow snow on the lots that I was responsible for at that time. And, uh, but I'm still driving. I'm like, I'll just drive the same truck. Almost hooked to another truck. I'm going to drive this truck. It's already jacked up, you know. Start going up the hill from every way out of my house is uphill. There's no easy way to get out of there. Going up the hill at Creston, going towards, used to be called Friendly Marts, Little Brad's. Going up the hill there. And this other guy in a two-wheel drive truck loaded with hay gets stuck on the road. So I pull behind him. You guys know. If you lived in Crescent, Baldwin's, you know. If you live over there, you're just doomed whenever it snows over there. You can't get out of there. Going up the hill, this guy stops. He starts sliding backwards, so I just stop. And as soon as I stop, I start sliding backwards, truck and trailer. There's nothing I can do about it. Two miles an hour backwards, and I get hung up on the fence till the the. Well, that's where everybody else wrecks, right there in my fence. But actually, I was on the neighbor's side, which was good. But anyway, slid over till the T-posts were stuck up through the trailer, and it stopped me. And it took me the rest of the afternoon to get out of there. And in, I'm, in my dilemma, just to add a little humor to the story for you, here comes Daryl G. Smith cruising down the road in his Land Rover. <sighs> and he's all-wheel drive, you know. He's like, hey, can I help? No, no, don't look like I can do anything. You're home. He drives off. I'm like, curse you, Daryl. You know, anyway. <clears throat> <laughs> in both cases of this terrible tragedy that befell me, um, I did eventually get out of the ditch. I think it was a couple hours later. I had to go back. I hate walking. I had to walk back and get a tractor and get myself out of that predicament, get the other guy off the road. Um, but what happened, it was, it was, I'm telling you, if I was going three miles an hour at the most in both situations, I'd have been flying. I mean, I was barely moving, and it was completely, the second thing, it was completely out of my control. It was slow as turtle, and yet it was still very destructive, and there was nothing I could do about it. And, uh, and all I could really do was go along for the ride. I couldn't even jump out of the truck because Daryl's cruising around in his Land Rover. I'm going to get run over, you know. And um, so all I could do was just ride it out and stay in the vehicle and hope for the best, you know. And so now we're going to talk about world events. The world is the truck, and you ain't even the driver. You're the passenger. And what's going on right now, as the world as a whole, is you're in this slow-moving one-car pileup that you can't do anything about. And um, it doesn't matter how corrupt the world is or how fishy it is or, or uh, how much you disagree with things of the world. It's moving at this speed, and you're the passenger, and you can't get off the, you can't get off the ride. Um, you do what you can, you know, hopefully you voted in this last election, hopefully whoever they are, that they counted your vote, whoever they are, you know, and, that, and that's the limit, really, as of today, that's the limit of what we can do as believers, as far as having a say in what goes on at the, the, the much higher level than what we exist at. We're just passengers. You know, from the beginning, God created the 
the heavens and the earth. He created man. He told man to tend the garden. And the first thing that man did after he falls into sin, we have Cain, he kills his brother, and he moves off and he starts building cities. God didn't tell man to go build cities. He told him to tend the earth. But there's something in man that's so counter to God that that's what we do. We go and build cities. Then we try to attract other people to the city, and then ultimately we have control over those people in the cities. It's what we do. And ultimately, I suppose that's where politics comes from. That's where other men tease you into thinking that you have some kind of say over your life when the reality is it's very much outside your control. It's, it's a lot bigger than you are. And I say... Truly, it's a lot more supernatural than we give it credit for. You can't see the things that are happening at this worldwide level, or even the United States, but, but worldwide. You can't look at those things and say, well, that's just one guy with a, a big idea. You know, that's Nimrod. Nimrod was the guy that built the Tower of Babel. Nimrod's main issue was God told him to get off the ark, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Nimrod said, let's go over here build this tower to Babel, Tower of Babel, and we'll all stay in this one place. And God said, no. I said, fill the earth, dummy. Fill the earth. Bam. Everybody's speaking different languages. And, uh, you know, the word is the great reset. They're looking for a global reset right now. That's one of the most obvious global resets that ever happened was the day of Nimrod. God said, you are not staying in this place. I will ensure you do not stay in this place. Nobody can speak the same language. And then we have the table of nations, the 70 nations that go out and fill the, the 70 languages that go out and fill the earth. And so, so as we look at this, this promotion of things, coming up to Thanksgiving, I won't, it's going to end more positive than it's starting, I, I promise you. But coming up to Thanksgiving, we look at these world events and we see that we're, they're completely beyond our control or our say. And in that... Uh, we see this, this global reset that they're talking about coming. They, the press, the world leaders. You know, this COVID thing is interesting in that for the first time in my lifetime, almost all the countries in the world are on the same page. Since when? We can't, we, you know, we can't get around along with other countries. Never have been. Other countries have always conflicted with one. All of a sudden, with COVID, we're all on the same sheet of music, right? And they were all talking about this one world government. And we're all talking about, all these, these world leaders are talking about getting rid of international borders and becoming a one world. And they're talking about getting rid of individual monetary systems within countries where the dollar, Chinese, the yuan, you know, whatever they are at different countries, you know. Now we're going to have one monetary system and it's going to be paperless. It's going to be digital. So nobody can cheat us. And we're going to have this, this new way of assigning leaders. And we're going to, we're going to this was a, one of their big ones they're talking about right now. That one thing they want to do, they want to reduce people owning private guns and things like that. But another thing they want to do is get to a one world religion. Because if we're all the same religion, then we'll be at peace with one another. So we see those things coming. The Bible tells us to be wise as serpents, but gentle as does. We see those things coming. And we, we get fearful. But as believers, we can go to God's word and see that those things are coming. We shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be too concerned about it. I mean, we're concerned. So where does that, well, where's that going to leave us as believers? The Bible says in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That's Hebrews 6.10. I read that a lot to people. 
people are doing one kind of ministry work or another. I'm going to read it to you here in just a second. I'll read it again. But they're doing some kind of ministry work, and they get really frustrated. They're like, man, I go to the rescue mission week after week, and I don't see any fruit. I go and feed these poor people week after week, and I don't see any fruit. I go and help with these children's ministries, and I don't see any fruit. It says, it, it, it's not up to other men to see your fruit, or it's not up to other men to produce fruit for you. God, working through you, produces the fruit. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do, and you continue to minister. God is unchanging, and his people in times past have had strenuous events and terrible things happen to them, um, largely because they dwell, God's people, you are God's people, and you dwell in a world system that is evil and seeks to do evil continuously. So when God disciplines the people that seek to do evil continuously, guess what happens to God's people that dwell in their midst? You get a spanking too. It's like when you all had to run, uh, we used to call them, uh, what do we call them, suicides or something? You know, you could have been the guy that's scoring 40 a game. But this slug over here that can't get the dadgum inbounds pass good, he's making us all have to run. We all got to run. I was the slug, <laughs> just so you know. I was the guy. Would you quit messing around out there? I was that guy. But, uh, you know, we all got to run because of this one guy. It's just how it is. So people have always struggled. God's people has. And God has always cared for them in those times. And he always will care for his children in the past and in the future. It may not be in the way that you think it should be because I'm God's child. This um, prosperity gospel has been preached in the U.S. and overseas um, now going on about 50, 60 years. It's a terrible lie. If I look at the prosperity gospel, I see that if I'm one of God's children, well, then nothing bad's going to happen to me. But if I look at God's word and I see Paul, terrible things happen to Paul. Terrible things happen to Christ. Terrible things happened to Peter. He was hung upside down. Terrible things happened to James. Wasn't he beheaded? Terrible things happened to all of the Old Testament saints, uh, prophets. They were killed every which way. They had God's presence on them, but they didn't necessarily have prosperity as men, as men measure prosperity. But here's, here's a, a way to look at it, maybe. But we're in kind of this cosmic chess match, and we don't, we don't want to be there. We don't feel like it's right for us to be there. But you have a supernatural power in the evil one that's constantly trying to get the upper hand on God. And God's like, go ahead, Satan, go first. And he goes first, and in one move, God's like, checkmate. And Satan's like, oh, let's play again. And he goes, one move, checkmate. All right, I'm going to let you have three moves this time. Checkmate. God's the one in control. And yet we're so concerned about the games that, that we're involved in because it's out of our control and we don't like being moved around on this board but God's the checkmate he's the one that wins the victory every time Ezra Nehemiah Haggai Zechariah those four guys if you it, they're kind of in a bad order in my opinion but you got Ezra Nehemiah and then you got Haggai and Zechariah in the in the last part of the Old Testament and then Ezra Nehemiah is before we even get to Psalms and Proverbs. So they're in kind of in the first part, but they're all telling the same story. They're all talking about the time where the Jews had been taken out into Assyria, <clears throat> and then now they're being returned to Jerusalem. And they're, I mean, they're on pins and needles because they're having to go through foreign lands that don't like them. They're surrounded by neighbors that want to kill them. 
And in that, they're trying to do God's will, they're trying to be God's people, and they're trying to find his presence again where they had gotten so far from it. They'd been slaves or defeated people under multiple nations, the Medes, the Persians, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, King Darius. Then we get to the Greeks. Then we get to the Romans. It's just, it's one nation after another that has their foot on the, on the Israelites' necks. And somehow, underneath that, they're able to still be God's people and still be used by them. And these four prophets that, I, that, I, that wrote these, short, these shorter books, they're the, the prophets or the kind of the spiritual leadership of the people throughout this time. And um, so in a sense, you could call them a pastor or a, or a, uh, or a prophet. And they're, they're, they're the prophet pastor for that kind of time of oppression that's come on the people. But as I was reading through those, if I had to pick one, I'm going to pick Ezra. Um, it just seems to have a really concise solution. Ezra chapter 9 has, that, has a really concise solution for how do I exist in a truck that's crashing at one mile an hour? How do I exist? What do, what do God's people do in perilous times? Ezra chapter 9. Are we there? I'm going to read you the whole chapter, relatively short, 15 verses. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers have been the, in the first place. They're the worst in this sin. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe, and I plucked out some of the, head of my hair, some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. Because of the transgression of those who had carried away, who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave a remnant, to leave us a remnant, to escape, and to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to, repair its, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, 
and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it was, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. So the biggest issue, if we had to pick out the, the issue, so they've been rescued from the land, they've been in, they were in sin, in idolatry, they weren't keeping the Sabbath, God takes them into Assyria, and now they've been returned. They get back and they're kind of doing their own thing, and Nehemiah says, let's build the wall. Ezra comes first. He's like, let's build the temple. But, so Ezra and Nehemiah, they're not that far apart in time, but here they're still working on the temple part. They get the foundation laid, and then they slow down. And then they have to be kind of whipped into shape, and then they go ahead and build the rest of the temple. But in between here, they're doing the work of God. This is the trick. They're doing the work that they're assigned to do, but they're touching the world while they're doing it. So it's kind of tainting the work of God that they're doing. Uh, so what happened here, the biggest issue here was, is that the people were intermingled or intermarried with the world. The problem with being intermarried with the world, with this world, is that they were such terrible idol worshipers. And, in, and they, they were always, God's people struggle with this, we want God but we want these other things as well. They were willing to have God the Father as their one true God. The problem was they were willing to bring on, you know, Ashtoreth or Molech or Baal or some other, uh, you know, God of that age because they liked the, maybe the sexual element or the, the food element of that particular, or the chance of victory in battle from this other God. So they wanted God, but they wanted this other stuff too, just to be sure. Because, I mean, they got it. So we probably need it. And so, so they're doing God's work, but then here they are kind of playing around the edges with these people that are not God's people. And what it does was it caused them to start to be corrupted. Deuteronomy 7, 26, it's a, it's a power hitter verse. Jude, you can write it down, Deuteronomy 7, 25 and 26. God's talking to them, and he's saying, I'm, I'm going to bring you in this land. You've been purified. I'm going to bring you in the land. But do not get tangled up with the people of the land. And verse 26 says, Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Don't bring the world into your house, Christian. Change happens really slowly and subtly. Um, nothing, uh, it was all about the same, say, till about 1870, thereabouts. They started getting steam power, figured out how to mechanicalize things, electrical power, started getting vehicles. About 1930, I think I read, I think the first uh, television transmission was just between, you know, inside a building or something, a tube-type TV. It was around the 20s or the 30s. Nobody owned a TV hardly by 1940. By 1950, 10-15% of the population had TV. By 1960, 50%. By 1970, almost everyone has a TV. We look at TV today as a necessity and not a luxury. 
A girl was moving out of the rescue mission, talked to her the other day, and that's what she said. My mom's going to help me decorate my house and get me a TV. We see a TV as like a couch or a bed. Like, I need a chair. I'm going to need a TV. And we don't see it as just a thing, and we certainly don't see it as a thing of the world. And I'm not, if you want to have TV, that's, that's on you. I'm not dogging you in that per se. I'm saying we never saw what could happen by bringing television into our homes. We never saw years ago, you know, when it started off, there was a lot of Christian programming on television. Uh, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of stuff on TV. Uh, but, um, but as time went on, it's gotten more and more wicked, and that's just how it is. But, you know, you think about it, in the last 50 years, in my lifetime, where I grew up off and on in Kansas, we didn't even have consistent electricity uh, as a kid there because the, the power lines went down the railroad track and a little tiny, and they had those glass insulators and a branch would fall off and you'd be without power for two weeks. A branch would fall, break the insulator because it was a high tension wire about this high off the ground and then it would break the insulator and we would be without power. And, uh, you know, we were on well water. And not that many people on well water now. We're all on city water. We're all supplied by a single source, you know, chlorinated and fluoridated and all that. But just, and that's in the last 50 years, 50, 60 years, TV, the improving cars and so on. All those things has come relatively quickly. But if you're just going day by day, the changes were so subtle that you would have never caught that it wasn't that long ago, power was very off and on. It wasn't that long ago when I was a kid, or even when I was a teenager, at about 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, and this was in Houston, we got television out of Houston, at midnight, they played the Star Spangled Banner, and TV was done until 6 a.m. There was nothing on TV, snow. And now it's 24 hours, every channel's got programming 24 hours, and again, I tell you, programming, think of the word, is designed to program you. That's what it does. It programs us in the way we think. We don't see it that way. You can call me a kook if you want, but that's what it does. So in time, it's changed our thinking. So believers and non-believers alike have allowed things into their home over a long period of time, not really seeing the potential danger in it. And even the people that invented the things didn't see how far it could go um, or, or what it could potentially do to people or some way it could affect people. But as it's gone... Corrupt men doing what they do have put more corrupt things on there, and it's been in our homes, and it's corrupted us. So if you could see all that was on the Internet all at one time, if it came to your front door, just a person built like everything that's on the Internet all at once, and he came to your front door, there's no way you would ever let him in. Um, he would look like the skeeviest, tattooedest, nastiest, pornographicest, ugliest gorilla you've ever, I mean, there's no way you let him in your house. Um, 80%, this was about three years ago, about 80% of the revenue generated on the internet comes from sexually explicit things, pornography, sales of pornography, and go from there. 80%. That was about three years ago. Maybe the number's different now, but why do people get trapped in pornography? Because 80% of the internet is pornography, and it's in your home. It's in the privacy of your home. We let it sneak into our homes, and now it has great power over us or for our children and so on um so uh anyway i don't want to get bogged down in the tv thing or the terrible things we've allowed into our homes um or allowed in direct contact with your, ourselves i'm just reading that warning from god it says you shall not bring an abomination into your house lest you be to doomed to destruction like it i don't think we saw 
This is how the devil works. He brings it in there sneaky and subtle, and then it's there. And you're like, well, I, I mean, everybody's got a TV. I can't rid of my TV. can't rid of my internet, my computer, whatever. I mean, I know many of us do business on there. The point is, it's not about the TV. The point is about our lives, period. The, the What's going on with these people is the same thing that's happened to us in the United States of America. We've allowed the world to intermingle into the life of every believer, and then we can't get separation from it. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous spot. So here's the outline to get from, what would we say, from fear to freedom, fear of whatever to freedom. As we fear these things that are beyond our control, how can we get freedom in our minds to just be God's people and know that he's got it handled? Jed read me that in Isaiah this morning, and I was like, yeah, yeah, we need to start with that because that's it. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the flood. He's with us in the election. He's with us in the great reset. He's with us in those things. We've got to get our mind about that. Here it is, Ezra um, chapter 9. The first thing, number one, is to be careful to protect our home from the world. Not in Ezra, it's in Deuteronomy. We've got to be more aware of what we're allowing into our home. I don't know why I beat TV up so bad. I guess that's the easiest target to pick, but it's, it's a number of things. Um, that's just one of a number of things. Number two uh, is indeed the hand of the leaders. If we read that there in uh, Ezra 9, 2, it says, indeed the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Um, we saw it with, you know, back in the day when Bill Clinton said, depends what the definition of is, is. And uh, they saw sexual immorality really jump up in schools. Why? Because the President of the United States says, it's okay. What I did was okay. That was between two consenting adults. Well, kids saw the leaders, and if it's okay for the leaders, well, then it's okay for me. And that's the problem. We see church leaders. I read about this Brian, I can't think of his last name now. Uh, he was the, huh, the Hillsong guy? Brian Lentz. Uh, huh? Mark Lentz? Mark Lentz, okay. This guy, you know, wherever you're at on the Hillsong thing, it doesn't really matter. But this guy is a, is a leader and one of the largest church movements that's going on worldwide right now, Christian movements, I'll say. And I'm very pro-Hillsong music. I'm very con-Hillsong preaching. But their music is solid stuff. You, we sang one of their songs. Didn't we sing one of their songs today? Maybe not. Anyway, we often sing songs that originated from there, okay? Here's this guy, one of their main pastors. He was their pastor to the elites. He's Justin Bieber's pastor. This guy gets caught in, a, in an extramarital affair. Turns out it's not the first one he had. Probably, probably won't be the last. This guy is a spiritual leader of a huge number of people. Thousands. I mean like multiple thousands. Maybe a hundred thousand. I don't know. Thousands. Maybe more. Listen to him. Watch them do their music. They watch online things. They go to those things. Here's one of their leaders. And he gets taken down by a, a sexual immoral thing that he was doing this was just the one he got caught on. So what is his people going to do? They're going to say, well, I mean, he's still married. His wife stayed with him for now. You know, his kids are still with him. I'm not trying to dog the guy. I'm saying when the leaders go down, the people observe the leaders, and it can take the people down too. You know, Congress, I don't know if you know this or not, but back in the day, they would call the people that were making the movies and stuff like that, they would call them before Congress and check up on them and make sure. Did you know Mr. Rogers had to go, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood had to go before Congress and tell him what he was doing on this show because he was influencing children. 
And now they come before Congress and they treat them like they're, uh, you know, superstars. And they're like, hey, we're going to make these movies about any kind of terribleness possible. And they're like, oh, go for it, man. I'm just glad I get to take my picture with you. You know? Rush Limbaugh says that uh, politics is Hollywood for the ugly. It's like, <laughs> if you can't make it in Hollywood but you want to be popular, go into politics. So, um, they just want the praise. They want the prestige. They want the power. And, um, and so no longer are those in leadership over us looking to care for the people, but they're looking to control the people. But here's, here's the turn of events right here, is, verse, is number three. It only takes one man to awaken from the stupor to change the people. Look at three through five. It says, uh, so, so Ezra hears about what the leaders are doing and what the people are doing. And it says, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. I was shocked. I'm just, I can't believe after God rescued us that we would go back over there and spit in his face and get entangled with the world again. And everyone who trembled at the words of the God of the, words of, the God of Israel assembled to me. Think about this. Your, your people who are wise as serpents and gentle as doves, they're watching him and saying, uh-oh, daddy's angry. Something's not working out right. They assembled because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. I just sat there and didn't say a word. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said... So he sees the problem. It becomes clear to him, number four, that man of God has to act in a godly manner, and he does. And I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed, verse 6, and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the day of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty. For our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, plunder, humiliation. Um, he acts in a godly way. He sees that his people... God's people, he sees that they're off track. Nehemiah, didn't he, he whipped some of them because they weren't, they kept trying to uh, uh, sell things on the Sabbath or whatever. Ezra's a, he's a more gentle man. He sits down himself, repents himself. What I see is that he takes on himself the repentance of things that he didn't even necessarily do. And we've talked about that in the past here, how sometimes we just have to say, God, you know, forgive me for things that my country, because I reflect my country. I reflect my father. My father doesn't reflect me. My dad can do whatever he wants, but it's what I do that reflects on my raising by my father. I reflect on my country. They call us ugly Americans. We go to other countries, we get loud and do crazy stuff. Because, and what we do is we reflect poorly on our country sometimes. We reflect our country. So we take on ourselves the responsibility for our nation when our nation gets off track. And we admit guilt, even, uh, even if we didn't do all the stuff. And not only that, we acknowledge God's right to discipline us. It says, because of our iniquity, you delivered us into the hand of other kings of other lands, sword, captivity, plunder, and humiliation. Number five, that man of God must realize that God is just, but also merciful and long-suffering with those whom are his. And this, was the, this is the word right here, people. And now for a little while... 
Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Who's getting revival? God's people are. It's for a little while. A little while is different from forever. You know, America's been a nation for a little while. If you take all the time that the earth has been the earth and nations have been nations, America's been a nation since more or less, you know, whatever, mid-1600s, but truly since 1775 and a half till today. So a couple, three to four hundred years. I mean, we've, we've beat the average. Um, uh, Rome was quite, almost 700 years. But uh, we've beat the average by far. Most of them, it's less than 100 years that a nation rises up and then goes back into nothing. We've beat the average. But the thing that we have is we have God's people in our country. And for a little while, God's showing his, his mercy and his grace to us, but we have to do something with it. It won't save us. God's grace and mercy does save us, but I'm saying it won't save us necessarily as a nation. But he's showing mercy and grace on his people for a little while. Now is that little while. We don't know when the window closes. We don't know when it changes. I was talking to, to whoever, Jed, one of y'all this morning, about, about going on mission trips overseas. It seems that that door is closed for now. It was open for a little while. Maybe we didn't take advantage of it like we should, but it's closed now. But for a little while, God has shed his grace on thee, this country, and we need to take advantage of it. Number six, God will allow a measure of revival. Verses eight and nine, it says, for a little while grace has been shown. At the end it says, and give us a measure of revival in our bondage, for we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings to revive us, to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. God's pouring his mercy out on us. God's discipline brings revival to God's people. You can, I think you can be a God-fearing person and not necessarily know God. But when God's discipline comes down on you, you will know who God is. You can know your father. Uh, Jed has got a plan for disciplining his children. He doesn't beat them when they're whatever this size is. But he said, there's coming a day, Mose, and it's coming soon, son. You know me as a father of love right now, but you keep messing around, bud. I'm going to tan them biscuits. It just happens. You got, they don't understand that as infants, but we've, as a nation, we've grown from infancy to what we are now, a mature nation, and we've turned our back on God. But the problem is, uh, not the problem, the issue, the thing, is that people know that there is a God. God's people knows that he's there. Our focus may not be on him, and maybe he has to pull out the, you know, the hot chocolate or whatever and remind us that he's still God. And in that, it brings revival to his people. Who's revived? God's people is. They'll see now, again, their need for him, where they've, they've kind of lost that in the past. Number seven, because of God's mercies, man can awaken to the worldliness that's entrenched itself in his home. He's more aware now of the evils therein and returns to warn his children and neighbors about the dangers surrounding them. Verse 12. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land. Quit thinking 
that this guy over here, this president that we have now, or the president that we're fixing to have, or who knows what we're fixing to have, or some other world leader, quit thinking that that's the person that provides peace and prosperity for you. It's a problem with us. We look at our governmental leaders as our saviors, and God and Christ is our savior, not a man that puts on clothing. The man that puts on clothing, if you could strip him down, he'd be just like you. He'd be covered in red. Red's the color of sin. Those are sin. You want a sinful thing to tell you another sinful thing what to do. And we have God, and he says, I'll dress you in robes of white. Why do I want red robes when I can have white robes, stained robes? Don't seek their peace or prosperity. Number eight, recognize that even God's people are due just punishment though we don't want it. It's verse 13. It says, And after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us such deliverance in this. Man, if we got what we deserved, the moment we got it, the, the day they took prayer out of schools, God should have crushed us. The day that Roe versus Wade was passed, God should have just emoliated us, just burned us up as a, as a country. The day that transgender marriage be or whatever it was, whatever, God should have just crushed us. But instead, his mercies are new every morning. He's, his love and his patience is long-suffering. If he gave us what we deserve, we could never raise our head up. If you, O Lord, should count our iniquities against us, who could stand? If you just remember our sins, who can stand? Nobody. Dads with kids, do better than I did on that. Quit reminding your kids of all the stuff they did. Well, I do this now because you did that back then. You know, put it away as far as the east is from the west. That's what God does for us. Show us God in that. Show your children God in that. Quit bringing up the stuff that they did. Nobody can stand up under that. Well, I saw you fail in this. I saw you fail in that. Nobody can stand up under that. And, and the other thing is, I had to tell a little girl at the mission. She's like, I want you to pray for my boyfriend, Steve. I was like, uh, is Steve a Christian? Well, no. Are you? Yes. Ditch Steve. Quit trying to bring the world into your house and try to make that guy into Christ. You can't do it. Steve is who Steve is. You're not going to change Steve. God can change Steve. Unless Steve is changed, get away from Steve. Cut him loose. She was very sad. Did you see when I said that? She was like, oh. Unequally yoked, man. We, we just see it as, oh, I, I just want to go on a date. I just want to be with that guy. I'm so lonely. I wish I had a... But forget it. If he's not saved, ditch it. He's not for you. Because what he's going to do is he's going to get your eyes off of the author and finisher of your faith. And you're going to be doomed. It says you're going to be doomed to destruction, just like it. Number nine, last one. Remember God. Remember his grace and his judgment. The Bible says to fear him to seek to obey him, to acknowledge his mercy in everything. Verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Even though we're completely guilty and you have punished us way less than we deserve, you are so righteous, O Lord God of Israel, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Guess what, people of Plant Grow Harvest, my family, who I love, somebody was dogging our building the other day and uh, said it was a little ratty. And it is, mostly the roof. But the inside looks good. <laughs> but it ain't what's on the outside, man. Because when you're on the outside of this building, it may be a little less than whatever. It's not the Taj Mahal. But when you come inside, it's got a really nice family. 
I'd rather have the nice family. The building's nothing. It's all going to burn up and go away. We've got a really good family here. God, you're so gracious to us. We're left. This body right here is left as a remnant with a purpose. Ezra 10, this was the very next thing. So Ezra says this, and it says, A very large assembly in chapter 10, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, and the people wept bitterly. And look at the end of verse 2. It says, one guy pipes up here, and uh, he says, uh, We have trespassed against the Lord our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. I don't care. I care. I weep for what my country could have been. I weep for what it was when I was a kid. I am concerned at the persecution that's to come because I worry that God's people don't have within them the, the loyalty, the stability. Their lives aren't built on the rock that's higher than I. They don't have that. I worry about that, but those are outside of my control. But what is inside my control is this, is that I honor God that I serve him in this day and I recognize that there's hope in this country still because God still has a remnant here. Here's our remnant right here. Here's the remnant. You're the remnant. The remnant's called to a ministry. The, ministries of being, the ministry of being an ambassador for Christ where you speak out with the gospel to those around. If we had continued to do that, if our grandfathers had and our fathers had and whatever all this time, we'd be in a different spot than we are today. But this is the spot we're in. But in spite of being in the spot we're in, there is hope in plant grow harvest uh, in spite of it. God's people are going to sin again. You're going to sin again. Sorry. Uh, we've sinned in the past, but even in our sinfulness as believers, we acknowledge that God alone is worthy to receive all honor, gl glory, and praise. And I think that this is the key point. Though our sins are like scarlet, he makes us white as snow. Though our sins are like crimson, How's it how's last part going? Uh, um, he makes us white as wool. Though our sins are always crimson, he makes us white as wool. He does the work. God's people are right there. It's, it's like a little plant, and you're, you've left it, and you forgot about it in the window, and it's gotten a little shriveled. You're a little shriveled in your uh, photosynthesis action, and you're needing a fresh shot of the Holy Spirit. And then he puts it on you, and you come back to life. You missed God for a second. You got off track there a little bit. And God's like, hey, I'm still here. If I have to whip you to bring you back to myself, I will. But his spirit is still there. He still pours his spirit out on us. He's still merciful. He's still full of grace. And he's waiting, or he's waiting on you to remember that. And we remember in days like this, when hard times come, is when God's people are like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be a Christian. Yeah, There's something I'm supposed to be doing. What is it? And God restores us in that every time. We profess to be God's people, and we haven't necessarily acted like that when we should, but we remember when we're reminded, and then we repent as God calls us. When we repent as God calls us, he blesses his people again. You can be blessed. Man, there's Christian people inside Afghanistan that are terribly persecuted, and when they talk to them, they're like, man, God is so good. How is that possible? Bible says we're being killed all day long like sheep. We're like sheep led to the slaughter. How can you be happy led as a sheep to slaughter? Because God is good. Because this ain't the end. Ongoing repentance by God's people allows for his goodness to reign over them. No matter what condition the vehicle that we're riding in is in. 
our repentance, our acceptance of the fact that we live in a fallen world and God's control over it is what drives us to the throne of grace. Renette and I were walking the other night. It was, it was real pretty. The sky was real clear. And uh, I got to get in shape. I'm supposed to go pheasant hunting with my dad. And you start marching around in that grass out there and you're getting leg cramps because I'm, I'm, I don't believe in walking much. I, I got to walk when I was young. I like to ride now. Zach understands. That walking's for the birds. You get in the truck, you drive over there, air conditioning. It's nice. But I am walking so that I can shoot the wily pheasant without having a stroke out there. And so we're just walking up and down the driveway. You know, we're going down the driveway. And this kind of whole message right there just really came god really spoke just in that moment and i'm looking at the sky and how big it is you can see that you can see the stars really well there's a couple planets right now kind of showing up over the moon they're really bright and i'm like feeling kind of small walking down the driveway you know and we get this picture of control in our lives that we just don't have we we have this view of ourselves we have this this thing of control and and i realize as i'm walking down the driveway all this stuff so far out of my control, what am I worried about? Um, I, can't, I can't concern myself as a believer. I can't concern myself with these things that are outside of my control. He, Jesus said, you won't be able to add by worry, not a hair to your head, nor one moment to your life, not one second, not one, whoop, that next breath, you can't add that to your life. He controls all that. We're just in the car. Um, I got to be more like Ezra. I got to be more concerned about the ministry of the gospel to the people that I can have an effect on. That's the ones closest to me. That's me. That's you. That's my children. That's my neighbors. That's my county, town, area, whatever. I mean, we live all over the county here. We could have a lot of impact in this county. We have impact. I send out, think about this, through social media that, that nobody wants to give up, are we using it for our benefit of the believers throughout the world? Are we using it for ourselves. Every one of you, a large part of you, read the Bible daily. A lot of you write down thoughts that you have about the Bible that you read today. Man, send it to somebody. Just send it out there. Pass it on. Don't put your political opinion on it. Don't put a spin on it. This is what God spoke to me this morning, and it helped me. Send it to ten people. Send it to three people. Send it to one person. And expand the ministry of reconciliation throughout the earth. That's what we're supposed to do. We have this opportunity now, a small window of time. How did it go? It was really small. You know, for a little while, grace has been extended to you from the Lord your God. For a little tiny bit of time, right now, you have the opportunity to be the best minister of the gospel that you've ever been. And you can do it. You're fixing to have a chance here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We implore you as God is pleading through us. That's me grabbing hold of some straggler stumbling off the cliff to death in his trespasses and sin, me holding onto his leg and begging him to accept Christ before it's too late. That's me telling my friends and neighbors, people around me, my family members, even if they mock and scoff, and we just tell them, hey, this is the gospel. I went to these people's house um, uh, recently, and they essentially told me they weren't interested in it. Hey, here's the gospel of John Mancia. Please don't fall off the cliff before you read that. Change your heart. We, we're to plead. 
we, the Bible says that he compels us by the love of Christ that's within us. Allow God to speak through you. God speaks through his people. He pleads through his people that others might be saved. So this Thanksgiving, I hope as you go, man, go meet with as many people as you can. I'm going to go on a road trip here and go see my mother. This, it's a long trip. It's 24 hours to where my mom lives from here, way out there by El Paso. But uh, I'm going to go out there and see her here in a week or so. And uh, this may be the last time I see her. Uh, things look like, politically and so on, that they're fixing to clamp down on travel and all kinds of things. So take the time. The people are coming here. You have an opportunity of people coming to you to give them the gospel on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is one of those days where we give thanks to God. It's a very Christian holiday. It's very American, but it's very Christian as well. Use the opportunity to be a minister of the gospel, to be an ambassador for Christ. Allow God to plead through you for the, for the, the soul and the spirit of those that would come. The Bible says that there, I thought it was a really neat verse. I've read it a hundred times and now you're going to read it one more. But it says, I will shake the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I'll fill this temple with, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The desire of all nations. They don't know they desire him because they don't know him. But you got to tell them who he is while there's still time. So for you, be strong, all you people of plant grow harvest, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Christ is the master. He's the master chess player. He's, he's in control. The only thing that can ever happen to us, the worst is that we're going to lose our life on this earth and then we'll be in his presence forever. So if I can encourage you this Thanksgiving, if I can encourage you through the book of Ezra, look at it again, read it again when you go home and, and be encouraged. Go through your house and maybe look at it and say, huh, is there some stuff I need to get rid of in my house? Is there something I need to get off my phone? Is there something I need to get off my cable because it tempts me when I walk by to watch it? Is there something I need to get out of my my flow of things that I do that takes my focus off of God because now is the time of repentance and this window may be very small. So I pray for you all this morning and as a family and as my children and my people who I love, I pray for you that you will uh, be bold in your witness this week and over Thanksgiving, these coming holidays and everything, that you'll not be concerned about these international things you'll be concerned about the thing closest to you, and that is your mission to give the gospel to all nations starting in your home, okay? Start first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. Start at home, and let's go from there. Father, this morning I, I pray for these that have come, Lord. I know that different people have different things in their lives. Different people have different things that they would consider sinful or not sinful, but I pray for our fellowship here that you would work in each and one of us spirit that you would convict us in spirit where we've fallen short, that we would be repentant in heart, Lord, that we would see the situation that we're in as a nation, not as a tragedy, though it is, but we'd see it as an opportunity to reach the lost with the gospel. Father, you said that you would send a grand delusion before your return, and I see a lot of people that are deluded in it with a sense of, if I do enough good, I'm going to be okay. Or it's just after the end of this life, there's nothing. 
So have mercy, Lord, on those that are under this grand delusion. Give us the words to say to break the spell that traps these people in their minds. They're walking around like zombies, Lord, completely lost and in need of your love. Give us that love, Lord, more abundantly. Give us a zeal that we've lost. Restore to us the joy of your salvation, Lord. I thank you for these that are here, Lord. They could have been somewhere else, but they chose to be here. I pray that they be encouraged this morning as they love one another and love you and that we spend this time together, Lord, eating together and fellowshipping with one another. What a great blessing you are to us. Your care for us is, is immeasurable. And we give you all the glory, all the honor and praise, Lord. If there be one here today who's not sure about their final destination, if they're not sure that, um, that they understand who you are or what forgiveness really is, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation and that they would receive you, Lord, while there's still time. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for the food and the hands that prepared it. Lord, we ask for your, your goodness to just remain over us and for us to remain under those wings, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We're supposed to have a, a business meeting. If you want to pray or you have something you'd like to pray about, we'll have time for that after um, the business meeting. Well, we got five minutes. We're going to take a five-minute break. We're going to have a business meeting. Kids, go play, but don't get in the food area or Renetta's going to put the hurt on you. And uh, if you want to stay for the business meeting, whatever, stay. And uh, we'll talk about uh, the budget for the coming year, and uh, we'll, we'll keep it quick and dirty. We're having uh, spiral sliced ham today, so I suggest you stay. Eleven thirty, we'll fire up again. Here, Pete. Oops. Come here. I made the changes on the thing. Oh. Oh, man. You leaving?